started, uh, I just want to introduce myself. My name is uh, Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're uh, in a series, or just finished a series, about Jesus revealing his identity. Uh, we're moving into his uh, prescription or his calling for uh, his, his disciples to be in gospel community. And so we're going to be in Matthew 18 uh, today. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, uh, back in the corners on the tables, there's some uh, Bibles, and those Bibles are uh, there for anybody to take. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Um, but before we get uh, started, uh, if you guys will join me, and just uh, we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, today, and uh, that we can come and we can assemble uh, in your name. Uh, we just pray uh, that your spirit would just um, work among us, work in our hearts, uh, that we would be uh, stirred up to uh, love you more truly, we'd be able to see you more clearly. Um, Lord, I pray that your word uh, would just expose things that need to be exposed uh, in us, um, that you would just uh, grow us up into um, grow us up into maturity in you, Jesus. And I uh, just pray that uh, you would just be with us as we're in the word uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week I told you we're going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 18. Um, last week we looked at verses 1 to 14. Uh, we looked at uh, verses 1 to 14, and we saw... Uh, this week we'll look at 15 to 35, and this is where Jesus is going to be equipping uh, his disciples to know how to deal with the conflict that they're going to be experiencing. Uh, he's going to be equipping them to deal with a conflict amongst one another in the body of Christ that doesn't lead to further brokenness, uh, but leads to restoration, reconciliation, and being built up into maturity in Christ. So as I was, <clears throat> excuse me, as I was looking at, thinking about conflict, conflict is something I, I might have... Uh, I have a lot of experience with, uh, just because of my own foolishness. Um, but it, as I was going through this verse and I was thinking about how we deal with conflict, it made me think about Kelly and I, uh, Kelly's my wife, our, our first year of marriage. So Kelly and I got married. We went to a small private school in North Georgia uh, called Tocqueville Falls College. And uh, we got married in between our junior and our senior year. So we were still students. Uh, we got married. And if you get married while you're a student, you know, I lived in the dorm. We both lived in, well, I guess she didn't live in dorm. Uh, that year, but I had lived in a dorm all the time I was there and ate cafeteria food. And so getting married in between junior and senior year was a huge deal uh, because that means uh, I would no longer have to live in the dorm. I could live in my own place, uh, eat my own food, and those things were pretty awesome. Uh, but one of the things when we, Kelly and I got married, we began to realize really soon that we dealt with conflict in completely opposite ways. Um, I am a pursuer in conflict. Uh, and Kelly is a retreater in conflict. Uh, so we, we get into marriage and we have all the ideals about what marriage is going to be. Uh, and a, a year goes by and we sat down and had dinner with a couple who we had asked to be a mentor couple for us. And, you know, we're sitting in the living room and uh, after dinner and they just ask, you know, hey, how was your first year of marriage? You know, you've been married for a full year. How are things going? And, you know, being an extrovert and really fast to speak, uh, I just answer really boldly and quickly, it's been amazing. It's been the best year of my life, as a matter of fact. I get, I get to live not in the dorm. People are always over. We're able to have like, an open door. Friends are always in and out. Um, I'm able to play with Xbox and go to class and do married people things. I mean, this has been an amazing year, right? It's, it's, it couldn't be better for 21-year-old 20, Brent. I'm just like, this is amazing. And I look over... And Kelly is just standing there, and her jaw's on the floor. And she's just like, she said, well, actually, uh, this has been the hardest year of my life. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, <laughs> this is some different perspective there, right? You know, I mean, in my idea that we had gone through this year, and it had been an amazing year, and for Kelly it had been one of the toughest years that she had had. Um, and in reality, uh, this is really reflective of, of any time that two people come together, there's going to be conflict. And, and Kelly and I definitely dealt with conflict in different ways, but I, I don't know that we really understood conflict. And, uh, but, but the reality is, and this is the same for in the church and when we grow in community with one another, there's, there's going to be conflict. And this is why Jesus is equipping and he's preparing his disciples for how they're to go about dealing with the conflict. And uh, I remember uh, in college we had a professor who did a lot of premarital counseling for students who were there. Um, and because we were at a private Christian school, you know, everybody has this, all the couples have this idea of they want the biblical, you know, marriage, they want the biblical engagement, and they want to do it right. And so they wrongly understand that, like, this means that there's going to be no conflict. And so he would explain that lots of times when couples would come in for premarital counseling, his first question he would ask them would be, tell me about your last fight. How do you fight? How do you handle conflict? How do you deal uh, arguments with one another? And they would respond because, again, they have this idea of what it should be. And they're like, oh, we don't really fight. And, and they really weren't lying. I mean, they just really hadn't fought. And uh, he would just respond, yeah, you, you shouldn't get married. Uh, you're not ready to get married. Uh, in that first session, you know, hey, what, what's your conflict like? We don't have conflict. He's like, hey, you, you shouldn't get married. And, and his name was Dr. Howard. And he went telling the people that, hey, conflict is this really awesome thing, and if you're having conflict and not getting along, now you're ready to get married. But, but what, he, what he was getting to is that anytime you have two different people coming from two different places with two different experiences and sin patterns and brokenness, when they begin to get close to one another and to begin to interweave their lives, there's going to be conflict. Uh, and, and I think sometimes in the church we misunderstand and we think conflict is this, this, this bad thing, this terrible thing. Uh, but in, in reality, uh, conflict uh, can actually be good. It can actually be good. Um, like I said, back to Kelly and I's story, I, I dealt with conflict uh, in a way that I would over-pursue the conflict because I was always trying to like, justify myself and make a case for myself. I was always trying to like, prove that I wasn't the one who was the failure. I wasn't the one... Uh, and Kelly, being more introverted, and uh, she would retreat and because she didn't really want to uh, go there because as long as I was trying to lift myself up, that means to lift yourself up, it, it's going to have to happen at the expense of someone else, especially when there's conflict between two people and you're like, well, I'm right. That insinuates, even if you're not saying it explicitly, uh, that they're wrong. But uh, thankfully, uh, the Holy Spirit was at work and we had a good gospel community that we were around um, and they began to press in a little bit to our marriage and ask good questions. Um, and we began to have some healthy conversation with them about, about communication and what com good communication looked like. Um, and all of these things were good. We learned things like, hey, don't interrupt the other person. I mean, they're, they're, I mean as, as you get older, it's just like normal th like human being type things. It was like, hey, you should have something. And maybe you should pass it back and forth, and you're not allowed to speak unless you have this... Uh, what, what, ours was a remote control, uh, but you know, you don't, you don't, you know, take your turn talking, really listen, you know, all those things. And, and those were all really good skills for us to learn, but later on we learned that th that wasn't the issue. The skills that we learned really opened the door for better communication, but those skills really opened the door to see that we needed the gospel to be brought to light on our selfishness and our pride, because that was really underneath the surface, beyond just basic communication styles, 
the communication probably helped us better see uh, the selfishness and the pride that was going on uh, in us. And so um, we, we learned that uh, as we bring gospel to bear on our conflict, there can actually be something good that comes from conflict. And that conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing, uh, but, it, but it's good, and I will make the case that it's even necessary. I would say that conflict, we, we as Christians, if we look at conflict and we see it as bad, I think that we don't understand its worth and value as far as our discipleship goes. Because for, for conflict really reveals that there's something wrong with this, right? It, conflict reveals that there's some sort of wrongness somewhere. And as we're going to see uh, with the scripture, conflict, really, or conflict causes our sin to rise. It brings it on the surface. And as believers in our gospel community, if, if, if our devotion is towards growing one another up into the maturity of Christ, then this is good news. Then conflict can be good news. Because in it, our brokenness, our sin rises to the surface, and, and we can uh, lead one another uh, in growing up into maturity in Christ uh, through it. So we're going to have conflict. And as the body of Christ, and I, I want you to see that this extends to, to us as the body, as we begin to really do life on life together, as we really begin to seek life and community together, as we really pursue a mutual mission of making disciples, you're going to find that in your missional communities, in your relationships, in your families, you are going to have conflict, you're going to have tension, because you're striving after unity. And the things that we really want in our sin patterns and in our flesh, we want people to unify and rally around us. We really want us to be the one who's catered to, and we want us to be the purpose but as the church, we've been called to fight for unity and find unity around God's word, around faithfulness, and around his mission. And so our aim as the church isn't to just find unity around the person who's going to be the most conflict-centered person so we can you know, not have to deal with that sort of conflict or, or the opposite. But we really want to fight for unity together, that we would fight for unity around the word of God. Uh, we want to fight for unity uh, that we would be willing to have our faith uh, formed in Christ and that we would be on the same mission together. Um, and the good news is that the gospel provides us with the resources to be able to uh, commit ourselves to something beyond ourselves. And it really frees us uh, to be committed first to Christ and to pursue his truth, his values, uh, and his mission. So I don't want us to misunderstand. Uh, conflict is going to happen. Uh, conflict is not necessarily bad. Uh, and in fact, conflict is necessary for our growth and development, our, our maturation uh, in Christ. So with that, let's move into uh, the text. If you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be reading, uh, finishing it up. So we did 1 to 14 last week. Uh, and then this week we're going to look at 18 to 35. So, and, and here I think Jesus is going to be dealing specifically with how we engage in conflict with one another. Because you know that, I mean, you can go about conflict in a way that does create further brokenness. And you can go about conflict in a way that destroys the other person or, 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 or destroys you. Uh, but Jesus is going to give some direction about how we as the body are to deal with, with conflict. So, if you will uh, follow along, uh, we'll be in Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 to 35. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he, listens to him, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let to him or let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment, or payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with them, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So let's look at this. Uh, most of the time that we're going to spend this morning is going to be looking at verse 15, uh, and then we'll look at 16 and 17. But we, we, we really want to understand what's going on here. Oftentimes, I don't, I don't know if you've heard it, you may have heard it preached on, or you may have read it on your own, or in, in some sort of a small group, but it's what a lot of people refer to as the Matthew 18 principle, right? It's how do we go about conflict, and it's that portion in 15 to 17 where it says, you know, if he sins against you, go to him alone, and if not, take two or three, and if not, before the whole church. And, and we take that kind of as, as the Matthew 18 principle. But I, I want to propose that if we just take Matthew 18, 15 to 17, and pull it out of the text and use that as our rule of thumb, I think we, we grossly misunderstand the entire context and really what's going on. Because what, what Jesus is doing here, this actually isn't a new teaching. This is actually found back in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's, it's an Old Testament teaching about how you deal with judicial matters or, or matters of conflict that arise. And Jesus takes this, and if you can kind of see it, he starts and he surrounds it with the gospel. He shows what its genuine or its original intent was. He shows what the intent or the heart behind this was when you look at the surrounding pieces. Right? Because in verses last week we saw in the first 14 verses that our heart posture towards others, right? He starts with this. The whole thing starts out with them asking, the disciples asking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he responds essentially and is like, hey, your heart posture towards others needs to reflect and accurately reflect the loving and long-suffering heart of God the Father shown to you through Christ. So that's, that's the idea at the beginning. That's what's starting this sort of conversation is that who's going to be the greatest? And he explains your heart posture, 
because this is my heart posture towards you, must be that of long-suffering, commitment, loving, compassionate, looking out for the best interests of the other. And then on the other end, you see afterwards in verses 21 to 35, Jesus, you know, I mean, Peter, right after uh, Jesus, you know, explains this, uh, Peter responds and is like, how, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Because in that clause, in 15 to 17, you didn't see a, a numerical thing, right? Jesus wasn't like, hey, you should forgive him three times, and when, it's, you know, when he's you know, done you wrong three times, then he, he's out the door. And so Peter, you know, you put yourself in Peter's shoes. I mean, Peter's, he, he's sitting there, and he's thinking, okay, so I've got this thing down. I understand it was in the Old Testament. Jesus is bringing this back up. It's important. So, so how many times should I actually go about doing this? You know, what, and so he, he actually gives a really generous um, number because according to the rabbinical code, the standard times that you would forgive somebody until they were cast out or dealt, or you know, no more forgiveness was three. And so Peter more than doubles that number in his response to Jesus. And we see Jesus respond and say, no, 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 not 70, Peter, you've misunderstood. He says 77 times to reflect just a massive number. And really, Jesus' response here is that forgiveness of other members of the body, other, other little ones, as we saw last week, uh, cannot possibly be limited by frequency or by quantity because all of us have been forgiven far more than we could ever forgive someone else. This is what Jesus is getting at in this parable. So, so as we look at 15 to 17 and how do we practically go about dealing with conflict amongst us, amongst one another, hear how this thing is surrounded. It's surrounded on one end with you go into it with this motive of looking out for their best interests, loving them, realizing that you go into it with no better standing or position than they do, but as their equal, as their brother. And then ends it with the end goal of reconciliation and forgiveness. And so if we miss those two pieces, we can take those middle verses and do a lot of damage. I can tell you, I grew up in the church and I've seen lots of damage happen with people just going by just those three things or, or, or you know, just going through the process. You can still do lots of damage when you enter into conflict with hate in your heart or looking to prove yourself to be right. There's a lot of damage that goes there. So we want to see the whole piece. And before we get into it, I do want to say too that parable that Jesus gives about uh, the kingdom uh, is, is a pretty moving parable and was, was for me. And so I just want to uh, give you the opportunity, if, if maybe you're hearing that and you realize that in your heart there's been some unforgiveness or you're holding on to resentment and unforgiveness towards somebody, uh, I, I want you to first hear that, what, that you're actually, that we are actually uh, the one in this parable. Um, and maybe you've misunderstood, you've forgotten, uh, or you just don't know that forgiveness and grace has been offered to you in and through Jesus. So if you and, and yourself are, are dealing with that, I just want you to hear that. Before we try to go and forgive other people, we, need to be for, we want to forgive them from a place of, of our own uh, forgiveness. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at uh, the practical piece uh, here in uh, verses 15 uh, to 17. Now remember, as we go into it, and you, you, I'm going to ask you to bear with me because we're going to unpack it just a little bit, and that can be a little bit like, Hey, we're going to look at the first part of this and second part of this and just talk about some of the practical pieces of it. So just, just bear with me. We won't do this for 15, 16, and 17, but really just unpacking uh, this, this first verse uh, in, in verse 15. And, and keep in mind going into it with a humble heart, looking out for the best interests of the other with the end goal of reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness in mind. 
So verse 15 said that if your brother sins against you, it starts out by saying, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So when somebody sins against you, we know that's going to happen, right? We've all been, somebody's done something wrong towards us or sinned against us. Uh, when that happens, he's saying uh, to go to that person alone. Uh, go into the person means that we address the conflict that comes up amongst us. I know that there's different personalities and different people go after conflict in different ways and some people really attack it and go after it and that can be like pretty harsh and there's some good words uh, coming up uh, for you. But, but if you retreat from conflict, if you pull away from conflict, I want you to hear that Jesus is saying, hey, go and address it because when we don't address it, bitterness is going to fill us and we know that Jesus teaches us that what's in our heart, our mouth will speak. You know, what we speak is really a, a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. And so Jesus is, is explaining that, hey, we, we, to keep stuff in and to not deal with conflict actually damages the body and will cause tremendous division. Uh, in Ephesians 4.25, Paul tells the believers uh, in the church of Ephesus to put away all falsehood and to speak truthfully to one another. And it's in the context of calling for unity in the body. He says, put away all falsehood. Falsehood is like whenever I'm having bad thoughts about somebody, and I'm not actually going to that person and dealing with it. Because then I'm actually wearing a mask, because when I go around them, I'm shaking their hands, we're smiling, we're pretending that things are all good between us. That's falsehood. Right? And he says, rather, he says, speak the truth. You know, speak truthfully with one another. I mean, again, we don't keep secret thoughts about one another. We're not, you know, having thoughts. You know, we deal with those and we bring them to the surface so that there can be restoration and reconciliation because either something's going on with me uh, that I need to do some repentance or maybe something is going on with my brother or sister and, and that, need, that needs to be brought up. Uh, and then later on in this same uh, chapter in Ephesians, Paul instructs the Ephesian church not to let the sun go down uh, on their anger. And he's not meaning literally like, hey, if you're angry, like, don't you dare go to bed. I mean, there's some people who take that really literally, and it's like 11 o'clock at night, and you know, husband and wife having some conflict, and it's like, well, we're not going to bed until we settle this. I'm going to tell you, 11 o'clock at night is not the best time to try to settle conflict with anybody. Um, but, but he's saying, don't let this thing fester. Don't let it stay. Don't let it stick. Don't let it keep going. Deal with this in a timely manner. So if, if something arises amongst us from we, what we see here in 15, we are being told to go and deal with the conflict. And then uh, this next part of 15 says, go to the person alone. Now, I think that probably, uh, so I, I harped on the more people who are going to retreat from conflict. They're not going to do a whole lot. I mean, they're going to push that stuff away in the first one. This next part is really geared towards the people who are going to be more aggressive in conflict, who want to go talk about this with other people or get other people on board or, or, or try to get attention uh, in and through it. He says, go to this person alone, which means that he's, Jesus is saying, you're going to your brother or your sister alone. We're going to him alone uh, indirectly, and we're going to talk to him about what's going on. And this is, this is pretty tough. Right? Because anytime there's conflict, uh, and I can only speak for me personally, it is my gut instinct to go and talk to somebody else about it. It is my gut instinct to get somebody else involved. Um, and, and he's saying here that that's not okay. We, when he says go and deal with that alone with this person, he's not saying go get counsel first. It's not saying uh, bring it up with a group of people as a prayer request. Uh, anywhere that we go, 
that's not directly to that person or to the Father in prayer is actually we're slandering and we're gossiping. Sometimes I think we can even ask for a prayer as a means to like try to justify ourselves before others, even if the group of people or the people we're talking to don't even know the other person. We, we, we in that moment feel the need to try to like conjure up some justification for like why we're angry and upset and like why this other person really sucks. So he goes on. So one, go to the person, meaning we actually address it. Two, we're going to the person directly and we're going to him alone, not involving other people in the conversation. Uh, and then verse 15 goes on, telling him his fault, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've got to keep in mind, uh, and, and it's, it's tough, but we want to keep in mind when we're, Jesus is saying, when we, when we go to one another in conflict, our end goal is not to establish our rightness, it's not to prove uh, how messed up your brother or sister is, but it's to go to your dearly loved brother or sister with the goal that there would be reconciliation and that they would listen. And so telling them their fault. Uh, this is kind of an, an interesting piece. Uh, and this is, this is not easy stuff because when we have to go and we're called to go and address conflict, it really means a lot for, for what, I mean, I don't know. I, I said this last week, but when conflict arises, for me, I get this like pit in my stomach, you know, there's like this sickness you know, that happens. It's like my stomach turns and I'm upset about it and uh, these different things. So it's not to be, I, I, we're not trying to deal with this lightly. But we, I do want you to see that oftentimes when we don't go and deal with conflict with our brother or sister, it's because we love ourselves more than we love them. We don't want to be rejected by them. We don't want them to treat us differently. And so we speak falsely to them. And, that, and, that, and that's destructive. And so this next portion we saw, you know, if, tell them the fault. If they listen, you've gained your brother. Um, so tell them the fault. I, I really like Ephesians 4, uh, and we need to heed the words when we're talking about telling someone their fault. Uh, we need to look at this, and in in, like I said, in this entire context with the heart motive for why we're going. The goal isn't to tell them their fault so they know they're wrong, but the goal in going is to tell them their fault so that they're reconciled and reconciled with the father, who their primary issue is with, and also with uh, his family. In Ephesians 4, Paul uh, says, you know, when we're talking about tell them, telling them his fault, uh, he says, rather than being tossed back and forth with different philosophies and doctrines and human scheming and cunningness, cunningness, um, he calls us rather to speak the truth in love. And he says that it's by speaking this truth in love that we will grow up in every way into him, uh, the head, uh, which is Christ. And so our responsibility when we go to the other person isn't just to go to them and take them their fault, but to go and bring them the truth, to speak the truth in love so that they could be built up into Christ. And uh, oftentimes we've heard speaking the truth in love is like, hey, you need some gum, your breath is really, really bad. Or, hey, we'd love to hang out with you, but you know, you're really rude to people, and so we don't want you around. But, but I'm telling you this because I love you. Right? I mean, you've all been in situations where it's like, hey, I'm just going to tell you this. Is it, tell, speaking the truth in love isn't just saying something you think is true and then tagging it at the end like, oh, but I love you. So, for real, though, when, he, when Paul says to speak the truth in love, what is the truth? John tells us the truth is the person of Jesus Christ. So when we're called to go and speak the truth and love to one another, we're being called to go and speak the truth about who he is. And what does he reveal to us? 
What would be the truth? If you're going, you, Jesus has shown us that the Father loves us, that he offers us grace and forgiveness, that he has a way to help us deal with whatever's going on and be set, from whatever bondage, set free from whatever bondage we're in, and that there's hope, and that he has committed himself to us, and that there's a gospel community that he's called to be committed to one another, to see this maturation and discipleship take place. These are the things that are truth. And so when we go and tell our brother our fault, we don't want to go. Please don't go and deal with the conflict and not speak the truth in love. We don't want to speak what's wrong with people without speaking the gospel truths into their life. If you've confronted somebody and they haven't heard the gospel, then you probably haven't spoken the truth in love. So on to the last portion of verse 15. Jesus says that if you've listened, you gain your brother. So the, the goal is listening, right? That they would hear, that they would be willing to come under uh, another brother. They would be willing to submit themselves to one another and hear what's really going on. And we don't only go into conflict. Jesus isn't only telling us to go into conflict hoping the other person listens. He's also, we're seeing here that we're called to take the hum, humble posture Right in the first 14 verses of chapter 18 that we saw last week. And if we enter with a humble posture, is there any other humble posture other than listening? We too are entering into conflict with open ears and open hearts to really listen. Listening means that we enter the conversation with a very real possibility that you could be the one who's in the wrong. It means that in the conversation you may find that repentance for the other person isn't actually necessary that maybe you've perceived things wrongly, maybe they've done nothing wrong, maybe you've just been easily hurt. Um, and, you, and, and you might find that the, the real problem and the real repentance uh, needs to happen uh, in your own heart. And if so, that's good news, because if we've gone with, to them with the end goal of reconciliation and not from a place of needing to justify ourselves and take this prideful position, then that's, that's a win, right? Because we go to them in conflict, hey, we realize that maybe the problem is, is within us, and, th and that's a win because you're, you're okay to hear that because your end goal is to see restoration and reconciliation. But in other cases, you may find that it's a very real thing that they have sinned. I mean, I, sometimes I think like, man, it's kind of crazy that uh, we think that we can disciple and lead and like shepherd one another without really ever getting into any sort of conflict. Um, but anyway, in, in any other case, in other cases, they may have sinned, uh, and if they have been in the wrong, if you think about how people have ever approached you when you've been in the wrong, when somebody approaches you from a humble position of listening and wanting to hear you, that really frees you up. It really creates an environment where there's like safety, where there's security, where you know the other person like really is listening and like wants to hear what's going on with you. It also allows us to actually listen for the heart a little better, because what we're going to see is that repentance isn't just saying like, Repentance isn't just saying, hey, I'm sorry, I hurt you. Because the reality is the hurting, whenever Kelly and I had conflict that first year and, and I would be kind of trying to justify myself and she would be hurt, me hurting her was only the outworking or the fruit of what was going on inside. The sin wasn't that I had hurt her. I mean, that was definitely bad. It was not good. But the real sin that's happening was really a lot deeper inside. And so taking the posture of listening allows us to really hear the other person's heart. And like I said, I think we don't, sometimes we don't understand 
repentance, or we kind of do kind of a surface level repentance. Um, but in reality, if we don't deal with what's going on, if we don't deal with the root, we're going to continue to see other manifestations of that. Even if we don't pursue conflict like we've done, you're going to see the outworking of that root somewhere else. And so, you know, some questions that I like to ask and that we like to ask is whenever we're listening for, like, repentance, it's not just, hey, how, what's the fruit? But we're saying, hey, what you do is really an outworking of what you believe about yourself, which is an outworking of what you believe about what God has done and who he is. Ultimately, who God is and what he's done, who we believe we are, that's going to all shape the things that we do. And so repentance is kind of tracing that back a little bit, helping somebody like go a little bit further back and deal with some deeper stuff. Um, lots of times, like I said, we, we, don't, we don't know what this looks like. Um, and I just kind of one more time go back to Kelly and I's story. I, I told you that I would try to justify myself. Um, and she would feel wounded and unimportant. Uh, and for me and my personality type and, and my family, we were all like really quick to apologize. I don't know if anybody's like that. It's like when there's conflict, you just like want it to be done and turn the page and it's no more. Maybe, maybe we're just weird. But I mean, we would have conflict. We would have it out, not Kelly and I, our family. Uh, we would like be having it out and it would be over. And we were like, hey, we're sorry. We forgive one another. Let's move on and do something else. And the first time Kelly saw that, she was like, what is wrong with you people? You said some really mean things. You should be mad for at least like two weeks. Like, and give them the silent treatment. What are you doing smiling at them? <laughs> but, but, but the forgiveness, the wanting to like get done with a conflict even reveals some deeper stuff going on, right? Because the cause... Of, of me hurting her was deep. The cause for me was me working really hard to try to justify myself. And me trying to justify myself was really the outworking of me not believing that I had been totally and entirely justified in and through the person and work of Jesus. Do you, do you see how this goes back? And then that probably means that I don't believe in the justifying work of Jesus for me in that moment. See, we, we trace this stuff and we go a little bit deeper and we can really begin to lead and shepherd and disciple one another to true repentance and true faith. So yeah, I needed in those moments, I needed, you know, when Kelly and I were in conflict, I needed to feel bad about like hurting her. That wasn't okay. But I, the real issue, what I really needed to repent of was, was not believing of, not believing I was entirely justified through Christ. And so I felt the need to like justify myself and prove my worth and value to her. Uh, and we know that any time that we're in sin, the outworking of sin is destruction. And, and that was very harmful for, for her in those situations. So back to the text. If there is confession, if, if you do get to go there with one another, if you get to lead one another into those places, that's really a time of intimacy and a time of beauty. And there's real restoration. And Jesus then... He finishes, and, and think about it, right after he gets done saying, hey, this is how you deal with conflict, he finishes up with this idea of forgiveness. And forgiveness, forgiveness isn't holding on to something. Forgiveness, uh, if, if you get there, if you get to repentance and there's forgiveness, like, that means that the conflict is done. It's over with. He doesn't, Jesus, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't give any sort of stipulation for let's carry this thing out. Uh, but when there's real, true repentance, confession, and forgiveness, it means that we don't hold records. Um, we, we don't hold it over them and lord it over them, uh, but the issue is uh, finished.
we've reached our goal, right? The goal was that we would, that your brother would listen and that there would be restoration and reconciliation between you two. So let's uh, look at uh, verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16 says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge uh, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I, and I really love this, not because I like to justify myself and so I need to go find two or three people to go like, make a case and an argument for like, why I'm right. And that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He says take two or three. And we see this theme all throughout the Old Testament. We see it all throughout Scripture. There's this idea of a, a community of a couple people coming around these things. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, take two or three people for the good of the other person. This isn't just to support you or to build you up. This is really for the good of the other person. It's to protect the person whom the charge is being against. Or who, who, I'm not sure the grammar there. Sorry. I'm not even going to try to recover. Because, uh, yeah. So it's for the good of the other person, right? And, and you really do want somebody. I mean, and this is practical because there are times when you're going to have conflict Especially if we real again, if we are really going to live like life on life and life in community and life on mission, I promise you there's going to be conflict. And there's going to be times when you bring up the conflict and we're going to have a real hard time hearing, you know, what's going on. And, and just as a quick caveat, know that this is also for you if you're the one who's being like the charges being brought against. That this same disposition, this attitude, this heart posture is also in, in a receiving to be able to receive, uh, you know, somebody bringing a charge or telling you, you know, that you've sinned against them uh, too. But so, so the idea here is um, two or three for the good of the other person, and it's for objectivity. Uh, when you take two or three, you're not bringing, like, your best buds who are going to, like, take your side and, uh, you, know, you know, I don't know, uh, be biased and not really look out for the best interests of the others. Um, but we really want to find people whenever we do go here, wherever we do bring two or three, that are really committed to the growth and development of that other person uh, and you uh, and, uh, in Christ. Um, and granted, they need to be somebody who's willing to like, hold that person accountable and speak truthfully to them. Um, but if, if that person doesn't have the desire to see that other person grow up into maturity in Christ, and if they don't have the desire to see... Um, you two restored and your relationship reconciled, um, then that person really shouldn't be brought along, uh, hands down. And like I said earlier, uh, when you bring two or three, you should be prepared because there's a real reality that the problem is, is uh, with you and maybe you've been overly judgmental or you've been keeping a record of wrongs uh, or you've been too critical. But like I said, this would be really good news because then uh, you could repent, confess, relationship would be restored. So in verse 17, uh, Jesus goes on and he takes it to this next uh, level. And he says, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning the two or three who went, um, tell it to the church. Uh, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now the church, we're going to just go over this real quick. This verse is not talking about necessarily excommunication. Uh, but when he talks about going to the church, we're talking about the body of Christ who does life together, who goes together uh, and does life. And for many of us, it could be the missional community, the people who are around them. So if they're unwilling to listen to the two or three, we take it before a group of people who are committed to them, committed to their development, their growth uh, in Christ. And if uh, they still refuse, 
um, then he says to treat them out as an outsider. But I, I do want to ask and just think, like, how are we as gospel people being called to treat people who are outsiders? On mission, right? We live missionally towards them. Uh, people that we feel like we've been called to share the gospel with and share the hope of Christ with, we're not going to destroy or, or, or tear down, but our hope uh, is for their good uh, and the good of uh, the kingdom and the good of uh, Jesus. Um, and we want to be committed to them, we'll be committed to their restoration. Um, and then, the, uh, you know, e- even in the treating them as a tax, ta- tax collector or a Gentile, uh, we really want to pursue more prayer for them uh, more care, more generosity, more hospitality, because that's how you would treat somebody you're wanting to share uh, the gospel with. So, again, uh, even in the times to treat them like that, um, you know, we, we desire restoration, you know, not rejection. So, we've looked at 15 to 17, uh, and as we move into our time of response, I want to uh, first remind us that, that, that Jesus... Uh, there's two like polar things that we can do with these sorts of uh, scriptures that go through and lay out some prescriptive stuff for us. Like on the one hand, we could take these and we could make them like legalistic, and we could find our like self worth and our righteousness uh, through being able to attain and to do these things, uh, and that that's not really a, a gospel understanding. Uh, then on the other hand, we can say, oh well, there's grace, so we really don't need to take Jesus's words uh, here as he's saying because there's grace for when we. Uh, you know, we don't, so we don't need to heed those. And that's not the case, because we see all through Scripture that, uh, that faith, this grace uh, in the faith and the work, this faith in the work of Christ is meant to produce in us an obedience. Uh, and so, like, this is his intent. This is how he's calling his church to pursue and to go about dealing with conflict uh, with one another. Um, it's just good to be reminded that our righteousness isn't, though, uh, found in our ability to do this but it's found uh, in the righteousness that belongs to Christ that's been given to us. Um, and to remember that uh, if, you know, while going through this, there's a part uh, of you that re- realize, hey, I-, I run from conflict, I'm unwilling to engage in conflict, I pursue conflict too aggressively. Maybe uh, I find a lot of my self-worth and value in being right uh, in conflict. Uh, maybe you have an issue with uh, really guarding your heart against like negative and horrible thoughts against your brothers and sisters. Um, maybe you have a hard time like taming your tongue and not like gossiping and slandering and going and having to talk to a bunch of people uh, about um, the things that are going on. Um, maybe the issue is that you probably give too much of an ear to hear gossip and slander when it's happening around you uh, within the body. I do, I do want you to hear if those things, if, if I know when going through this, we guys like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a lot, uh, but Jesus does call us to repent, and not just of the outworking of our sin, which are those things that we just talked about, uh, but really the root uh, that always comes from unbelief in the gospel. So the question is, if, if we, if we want to see wholeness, if we want to turn and we want to repent, I want to ask you, are you believing the truth that we found in chapter 18 about, about the Father? Are we believing that we're deeply loved by the Father, and that Again, we are the one in the parable who is in need of forgiveness and that our account is the one that's been settled. Uh, and that even if we find ourselves failing miserably and we're like, hey, we were just having a hard time like, following Jesus uh, in his words here, do we remember that grace and forgiveness have been given to us in Christ? 
and that the Father uh, is for us, that he's patient with us, that he's slow to anger, that he bears within us in our weaknesses, but he also is totally and entirely committed to seeing us grown up into maturity in Christ. Like in our failing, the Father is totally committed to us, but he is growing us into maturity in Christ, which means that he is growing us to deal with conflict in this way that Jesus has taught us, with a heart for one another, with the end goal of reconciliation and restoration in mind. This is good news, uh, because I think each of us, when we start talking about conflict, can, can see some stuff going on. And I just want to encourage you with your uh, missional communities, with your uh, DNAs, with your families, with other believers, you know, find an opportunity. If, if you realize that there's some areas that are going on that are, real, that are sin, and Jesus is speaking against those, like, let's confess our sin to one another, and let's help begin to, like, lead one another to repent and to believe the truth about the gospel, the truth not just about, hey, I shouldn't hurt you any longer because this is hurting you. But really, my deep, you know, our deeper issue is that we're not really believing the truth about who God is and what he's done in Christ and then what that means for who we are. That, that's what our actions are always going to reveal. So I just want to encourage you guys as a community, as uh, we are a community together, to be open about like, confessing uh, sin to one another and leading one another to repentance um, and uh, I, I like um, the way uh, Jeff Anderson talks about um, uh, repentance. He talks about, you know, p- part of the repentance is one is like recognizing our sin. Like the next is like recognize, uh, repenting. But the third is like where we often like leave off when we talk about repentance. You know, we think of like repentance and we're like, oh, this is a sorrowful, horrible thing. And I need to go and walk and feel terrible about it. But if we're believing the truths of the gospel, we can walk from our repentance rejoicing in who and what Christ has done. And what that means for us. And we can celebrate. It's actually good news. So we're going to enter into a time like we do each week of uh, uh, response. And in that response, we take communion. Uh, together, we come up through the middle aisle uh, and we dip, take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice. Uh, and this, uh, as we come up and we take the communion, we're saying that, hey, we believe that this is the Father's disposition to us, shown to us in Christ, that this is who Christ is and what he's done and he's given freely uh, to us. And so by coming and taking, you're proclaiming that. So um, if, you, if you don't believe that, we don't want you to come and uh, tell something that you don't uh, actually believe. So we'd encourage you to stay uh, where you are, not as a way to call you out or to shame you, but, but to, we just ask that you would stay where you are and really hear uh, and really reflect on uh, the truths of the gospel. Um, we'll also have, there's a giving basket and a backed, which is another way that we worship through uh, giving of the tithes and uh, our tithes and offerings. Uh, and then there will also be people, if you want to pray, uh, there will be people uh, in the back with some lanyards on, uh, and they would be more than happy to uh, spend some time uh, praying with you. Uh, so if uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, close, and I will go ahead, or we'll go ahead and enter into the time of response. Um, but we'll do that uh, starting with prayer. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you just uh, would you really stir up in us like ways that we're living that aren't uh, in line with you and uh, that are damaging to our community and uh, mostly uh, offensive to the Father? We pray that you would just. Uh, convict us of sin, that you would just convict us of the truth of who Jesus is in that uh, and what he's done for us. Uh, And Lord, that you would just lead us uh, to live uh, joyfully uh, with one another in community, um, just celebrating uh, the opportunity we have to turn to be grown up uh, into Christ. 
Uh, Lord, as we take communion, we just say, again, we just thank you uh, for the free gift that you've given us. Um, We just pray that um, as that becomes a greater reality for us, that it would become a greater reality in our lives in the way that we uh, dispose ourselves to one another. So we just pray all these things in your name. Amen.